everybody, and welcome to the Paychecks Business Series podcast. I'm your host, Gene Marks. I'm a certified public accountant and regular business columnist for a bunch of publications, including Forbes and Entrepreneur. But more importantly, I'm a small business owner of a financial and technology management services company. I've teamed up with Paychex, the leading provider of human resources, payroll, benefits, and insurance services to bring you real-life advice from real-life business owners and industry experts. In this podcast, I'm talking to Mark Cuban, who, among other entrepreneurial activities, is owner of the Dallas Mavericks and also appears on the popular TV show Shark Tank. Mark, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Gene. So um, let me cut to the chase. Uh, you're, you're very, very involved in, in all things small business and entrepreneurial, and I wanted to get your take and opinions on some of the issues that are going on right now as we're in the middle, obviously, of, uh, of obviously trying to emerge from the pandemic and, and build ourselves back up uh, you know, with recovery. So, so issue number one, Mark, you know, there's – I've been working with small business for a number of years. You know that a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners have always prided themselves on being independent, separate from the government. Sure. Leave me alone. Uh, you know, I pay my taxes. I want to pay as little as possible, but um, you know, let me do my thing. And, and I got to tell you, when this whole thing broke out and the Paycheck Protection Program started, those same independent business owners were clamoring for help and assistance. Um, no longer as independent as I once thought that they were. What are your What are your thoughts on that? So somebody had a great line. Um, I think it was I think it was this guy's Professor Scott Galloway who said that entrepreneurs are capitalists when business is good and socialists when business <laughs> is bad. You know, and that's effectively it. When you're a small business person, you know, you want to survive first. You know, I remember my first company, I've been, you know, just being excited with every month anniversary. I'm in business one month, two months, three months, because if you've ever had a business fail, you know the pain and just surviving one more month gives you that chance to go forward. And so when you have such a unique situation like we're facing now, it's not surprising to me at all that we have entrepreneurs just, you know, asking for any help from anywhere um, just to survive. You know, my dad said to me, he was like also a CPA as well, and he said, listen, when you work for a company, you have two weeks job security, and when you run your own business, you know, you've got about two months. So, you know, there, there's there's that level of panic that's on the horizon. I, I, what do you think about that, though, is, you know, the business owners themselves, do you think a lot of them are going to change their attitude towards the kind of help that the government can provide? No, of course not. You know, they're, they're going to say, it wasn't me who shut down the country, right? <laughs> You know, so you're hearing a lot now. I would have kept it open. You know, it's when when your livelihood, when your family, you know, putting food on the table is at stake, you do whatever it takes. And once those, day, those days are behind you, you kind of revert to where you, what got you to where you are. So I don't think we're going to see any wholesale change in attitude whatsoever when we get to the other side of this, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, you know, it, it won't be business as usual, but I think the smart companies are realizing that trends that existed pre-COVID have been accelerated dramatically. And, you know, and the impact on traditional retail um, is going to be in, incredible and difficult for a lot of folks in that space. Yeah, I'm going to get back to that because I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on, on where some of those changes are going. Okay, um, minority business owners. Uh, uh -huh. All the data says that these guys are not getting the help that they need, um, and they've been, you know, in many cases, the most severely impacted businesses in the country. What are your thoughts on that? 
It's true. I mean, look, most minority businesses are bootstrapped. They're not, they don't deal with traditional investors. They don't have the traditional support systems in place and they're very much local. That's not to say people, you know, these companies don't grow, their companies don't grow and some excel and, and do incredible things, but the, the preponderance of, of uh, businesses owned by people of color are, you know, the, the bootstrap startups that sell locally and they don't have as you know the cpas they don't have tax accountants they don't have lawyers they don't have relationships with bankers to help guide them through and that last point you know the lack of relationships with bankers really showed um, when it came to ppp um, i talked to a bunch of minority businesses women-owned businesses and you know i asked them who they banked with and if they talked to their banks and Every single one of them talked to their bank, but because they didn't already have credit in place, they didn't have a banker that they knew, right? They had just signed up with their account with that big bank. Um, they really weren't taken seriously and they were just put into an online queue or a phone queue. You know, where I was able to help them the most was connecting them with small um, com community banks because those community banks may have 500 accounts, business accounts in total, you know? And so being able to find one and move your account there, you were able to get um, funding, PPP funding for, um, for minority companies same day. And if not same day, the next day. And, and so, you know, hopefully a lot of these community banks will learn from that. And a lot of people of color who are starting businesses will, will, see you know these things surface online and guide them to working with smaller banks rather than larger bank and the whole concept of well see i bank with a big bank that makes me look bigger is is actually backwards and and, and it should be the other way around i bank with a small bank and i'm a bigger fish you know it's funny with minority business owners too and it's tough for me as a middle-aged white guy um you know to offer you know advice uh, particularly in these times but you know what i find again and again is that there's this lack of self-confidence you know i mean these guys don't you're right they don't deal with bankers and accountants as much um that you know the, the education just hasn't been there in a lot of these communities and i think it holds a lot of these people back from asking the questions that they need to ask i mean what do you what can be done to fix that problem I mean, we it, it starts in schools. I mean, education as a whole for, for everybody in low income communities has just got to get better. Um, and in terms of helping smaller businesses, I, I just I just try to push them as much as I can for the reasons you mentioned to go to all online resources, you know, because you don't all of a sudden walk in and help a minority business and say, boom, you know, let me just tell you these three things. And now you have everything you need to know. Um, every business, no matter who runs it, faces ongoing change. You know, the only constant in business is change. The only constant in life is change. And so, you you know, I've tried to really be supportive in guiding them towards online resources that it makes sense to take a Coursera or other online class on finance, you know, on understanding the banking system, even, you know, or you could just watch YouTube videos about it. You know, just there are resources there. We just have to encourage um, minority companies and all companies to do it. Yeah, in the end, it's got to come, but it has to come from the independent person. So, and something, you know, 
at some point you've got to take responsibility for yourself and step up because there are resources out there to help well, you. But that's a given. But that's a given, right? Because you're not starting. You know, people aren't going to start a company unless they're taking responsibility for themselves, particularly as a bootstrap company, right? And so you've got to start. You know, because ninety. You know, I give I give these minority businesses credit because everybody's got a business idea. Every human in this country has got that one idea. Right. And 99% of people, if not more, don't take the step to start that business. And so if some if a minority company in particular has taken that initial step and taken on that risk, you know, they're taking responsibility. Now the question is, you know, <clears throat> engaging them and showing them and pointing them towards the resources that are available for free that only require their time. And you know, yeah, you can argue, well, everybody knows you just go on the internet and look, but not everybody's confident that they even know enough to start that process. And I think there are so many, you know, it, it, it takes less just to go through that process of educating yourself than people realize. And we just have to give them that confidence. You know, and it's funny, you know, we can move on, but I just, it, it frustrates me as well because now more than ever, honestly, establishment, white people, banks falling over themselves to, to, to help and to show that they care. Um, if only they were asked and knew where to go. So it, it's a good time yeah. now if you're a minority business owner to reach out. Yeah, I mean, look, it's always a good time to reach out simply because you want to make your business better. It, um, right. It's, but it's more difficult. Look, if, if you went to college or if you went to a college that supported business or, you know, you know a lot of, you have a network is a better way to put it. You know, if you have a network of people that have business experience, you have people to call. But, you know, in some neighborhoods, you, you know, you don't have that network. You don't have somebody who can guide you. And that's part of the challenge. And and so, you know, we've got to push banks and other financial institutions and educational institutions to really reach deeper into communities and, and offer that guidance and help. Fair enough. Um, we, we You mentioned banks and we talk about that. Did banks drop the ball during this whole paycheck protection process? Hell yes. Hell yes. Right. Now, I understand why they, they dropped the ball because they were reticent, they were concerned that we could see a repeat of what happened in 2008 and 2009 and actually 2010 with the Tea Party when a lot of the loans that they pushed forward to give out um, to help companies were reevaluated and the the financial support or financial backing for those loans or the purchase of those loans by the government didn't take place because, you know, the Tea Party tried to cut expenditures and banks were victimized to a certain extent, if, if you could ever say big banks are victimized. Right. Um, and so they were very hesitant to get all their I's dotted and T's crossed. That created the problem. But more importantly, you know, rather than trying to approach this somewhat randomly, if you will, they, they worked with their biggest customers first. And on one hand, it makes sense because this was a paycheck protection program and those people, those big, their bigger customers employed more people more often than not. Um, you know, but just by definition, how the math worked, you know, bigger numbers were going to get you coverage of more employees. But at the same time, they didn't make the effort of working with smaller companies. Um, and, as a result, you saw the average loan start at 300,000 plus with the first tranche and then go down to where it is now 106,000, which, you know, by definition, just tells you who they focused on. Doesn't it amaze you as well that banks spend hundreds of millions of dollars in branding and marketing their services to small businesses? And here 
you have the government handing them this golden opportunity to reach out to small business customers because yes. many of them didn't get it? Yes, I said that exactly, Gene. So, you know, when it first was announced and I was talking to different banks, um, some of the bigger banks that I, that I work with, I basically said to them, you do realize this is the first time in the history of mankind where you're allowed to go out and acquire customers and tell them, small businesses, tell them you want to give them money. And if they do A, B, and C, they don't have to pay it back. Why are you not out there recruiting every business possible to increase your customer base? No, no big business, no big bank undertook that. Small banks did, yep. community banks did, but the big banks didn't care. And that says everything. It amazes me. It really does. Okay. There's um, a bill right now circulating in Congress. Um, Secretary Mnuchin last week also testified in front of the House about uh, potentially giving blanket forgiveness to small businesses. In his case, he was referring to anybody with less than $150,000 in paycheck protection loans. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. I mean, I talked to a bank, a small bank, who said it's going to take them, a, it, it took them for one $10,000 loan, eight hours to deal with all the paperwork. Right. And so it's just you're just better off and just ask the bank to do some basic fraud protection because, you know, it's not inconceivable that someone got a $250,000 loan and bought a car. It's going to happen. But I mean, listen, in any business, you have a reserve for doubtful accounts and a reserve for inventory returns. No, no question. <laughs> so no uh, question. Yeah. You just want, you know, you want to do some of the basics, but I agree, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And so, you know, you're, that's just the nature of the business. But I think it's in their best marketing interest to do some basics that they can kick out some of the bad actors so that, you know, there's incentive. They don't have to catch them all. You just want to catch a few just to set an example. But I agree with you. And, I, and to answer your question directly, yeah, I think it should be forgiven at, you know, whether it's 150K or 200K, whatever that number is, because just from um, an efficiency and a productivity standpoint, standpoint for the banking industry, by doing that, you reduce the agenda for all those small businesses who don't know what to do because they don't know if their loans are going to be forgiven. Uh, next round of stimulus is going to be happening in the next few weeks. And, um, you know, there'll be some tweaks to the Paycheck Protection Program. What do you hope to say? The thing about the Paycheck Protection Program is it was kind of a bet on two things. One, getting money in the hands of businesses quickly so they retained employees and they didn't go on, on unemployment. Um, and that didn't happen because the money didn't get delivered quickly enough. You know, we, we used up the first tranche of money and it went primarily to bigger companies who may or may not have had other access to capital. And so you had, you know, 4 million, what was it, 1.7 million companies initially and 4.9 total. So 3 million, give or take, companies that, I don't know how I remember those numbers, but 3.1 million, give or take, companies that were part of tranche two. And by the time it got to them, the demand had already fallen off a cliff. And then part two to all this, it was a bet on how long COVID would be having an impact and how long we'd be closed or diminished in terms of availability of commerce. And so we created a lot of companies that were in suspended animation. They brought back employees because they had to bring them back in order to have the, the, the loan forgiven, but there was no business that would otherwise support having those employees on payroll. And so now fast forward, um, you had companies among those that got the PPE that were able to transition to being more digital and survive. And when the stimulus payments hit, they did very well. And, and in, in reality, the average income in this country went up significantly because of all the unemployment insurance. And that created a consumer pop that a lot of companies 
benefited from. But here we are now with with the the unemployment insurance enhancement running out um, this week. And if we, in my personal preferences, that we do another stimulus and that we expand the unemployment insurance premiums, you know, CARES bonus, if you will, but not at $600. And I want to see it on both on a more targeted basis. So if we're going to do another $1,200 or $2,000, I think we knew it need that to be more targeted. I don't, you know, some people might hate me, but I don't think we need to send it to people who are on social security. Mm-hmm because those people already had set budgets. Mm-hmm. We didn't send it to people who were college students and um, younger people who are dependents. And they, we should have, if only because they're the people who spend everything that they get. And I think we also should put in a use it or lose it because the whole point of this um, for the stimulus, for the for the $1,200 equivalent, whatever that amount may be for the stimulus program, because the whole point of this is to have it spent so that those small businesses have revenue coming in and they can survive and not be zombie companies. Um, But what's happened, instead of it being spent the last $1,200, we saw the savings rate go up to 33% and still growing. And so we need to make sure that, you know, particularly for the direct deposits and, you know, the people who are getting checks, that if you don't spend it within some period of time, 30 days, let's say, that direct deposit gets reversed out and that check gets canceled. Okay. Because we need them to spend it. And in terms of the unemployment bonus, $300, but the same types of terms, um, I don't, I don't, haven't come to any conclusions whether we should bonus people for taking their jobs back, right? Right, as opposed to just getting the 300. And I'm not opposed to indexing the 300 to based on where you live, but the the bigger picture is we have to do it quickly um, because otherwise the cascading impact of, you know, people, you know, not having money and those businesses that are just barely holding on collapsing. Um, is going to make all this even worse until we get that back. Some businesses are, they're, they're pushing for potentially a second loan for the very reasons that you just said. Other businesses um, are in specific industries, restaurants, retail, they need more help than a lot of other companies out there. So would you support more targeted lending based on that? I don't know yet. I go, I go back and forth, honestly. Okay. Um, on one hand, you know, restaurants as an example, and you know, I'm an investor in restaurants. Mm-hmm. On one hand, People still eat. You know, this is not an essential need where if these restaurants aren't open, um, then then people don't get access to food, right? Because those restaurants, some have, have reimagined themselves as just takeout and delivery and doing okay there. But on the flip side, so on the balance sheet, if you will, when you look at the balance sheet of restaurants versus, you know, where you get those sources of food when those restaurants are closed, that other side of the ledger, is is benefiting right now right and so whether it's grocery stores you know delivery of, of prepackaged meals takeout and delivery right those benefits are getting that restaurant business right and so is this creative destruction and better for the economy because it's more efficient i think you can make a strong strong argument and because we're going into um maybe a new environment on how restaurants look and are designed do you want to be in a position where you protect these legacy businesses when they're still going to have to redesign themselves and face, you know, even when we get to the other side of the vaccine, or do you just let them declare bankruptcy and, you know, start again with whatever, wherever they need to be? You know, the, the capitalist and the libertarian in me says this is creative destruction 
and it's a net zero on America's balance sheet. So I don't have, you know, for the hospitality industry, for travel industry, right? It's, it's hard to say, yes, you just, you know, give them a lifeline when effectively, as long as this is a lose it, use it or lose it stimulus, people are spending that money elsewhere. Right. Well, you know, I, went, I live in Philadelphia and walking around the streets here. I mean, most of the restaurants now are open. Um, some of the better ones have put together some pretty good takeout services and delivery services. Uh, they yep. scaled back their overhead. I mean, as long as they can cover rent and quite a few owners that I've talked to have been able to renegotiate rents with their landlords. Yep. Um, so yep. they're kind of making do. I mean, they're not making a whole lot of money right now, but they're they're paying the bill. Well, I, I talked to one guy in Chicago, one of my friends in Chicago that owns a local restaurant said he, he took out his in-room dining and just went takeout and delivery and he's making more money now yeah. because you know you have to expand your kitchen a little bit just because of volume but you know your margins are the same you can charge a little bit of a premium and particularly if you're direct and not using third parties for delivery you know there's maybe that's a better solution yeah. Okay. Listen, I mean, I want to, I want to keep careful of our time here, but at the same time, I do, I really in, enjoy hearing your opinions on some of these issues. So Fire the Senate is, is pushing really hard, um, you know, for, to limit business liability. Um, you know, we're bringing workers back. It is a very contentious issue. A lot of my clients are terrified that they bring workers in they're, they're they test positive for COVID and they, they turn around and they blame, uh, you know, the business. That's where they got it. The same thing with customers as well. So, where do you stand right. on limiting business liability? The devil's, this is one of those things, the devil's in the details, right? right. You've got to look at specifically. Um, I, I think you set up a general liability pool that the government has because effectively that's what we're doing anyways right now, right? We're, we're taking care of, you know, vaccines are going to be free. Um, we've told insurance companies to, to, um, um, to take care of most COVID um, patients for free or to pay the, the providers for them. Um, and I don't think that there's a good case to be made that any individual company, particularly retail facing company, um, did something that warrants liability because the federal government didn't establish protocols that needed to be followed. If we had, like when all this started happening, we, you know, we made sure in all of our companies and I try to be as vocal as possible. I work with the AIHA, the association, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Okay. And to try to come up with protocols and you can reach them at AIHA.org to get information on, you know, really in-depth ways to open your company um, when you're dealing with employees and customers. And I also worked with this group, you know, that's behind this book, Healthy Buildings, to try to understand, you know, how do we minimize the risk for employees and customers? But there's no standards for any of that. And so I guess this is a long way of saying, as I understand things right now, I would be pro-limited liability, you know, where you just have to have really made some conscient, you know, mistakes that you knew you were making and you just ignored them in order to be liable. Fair enough. The um, coronavirus pandemic has um, introduced um, mandated vacation now or time off for sick, right? So the Emergency Family Medical Leave Act now, right. all businesses of all sizes have to provide time off if somebody's been affected by COVID. Uh, the House passed a bill back in May that will extend that through January of 2021. I know that, you know, uh, you know candidate Biden also supports uh, mandated time off for, say, for new parents and, and for people sick, also expanding the Federal Medical Leave Act. Where do you stand on that? And what do you think mandated time off, how can it work 
for small businesses? Do you think it's more expensive or not? You know, it's painful. Yeah, it's it's painful. There's no question about it, but it's required. You know, I think it I think it ends up being a net positive for small business, even though you know you have three employees and you're dependent on all three of them, and one of them, you know, gets pregnant, you know, male or female, you know, is becoming a dad, and they want to take that time off. That's just the price of poker these days. Right. You know, it's really what what it's going to take to have a productive society because you know the flip side is when people can't work it it diminishes and don't have income it diminishes the whole community and so my my attitude in all these things is as long as everybody's playing by the same rules whether it's a minimum wage amount whether it's um extended leave whatever it may be then i'm good to go it's when you deal with things like minimum wage and you cross a border and half a town is, you know, X dollars and half a town is X plus dollars. That's where I start to have issues with it. You know, Mark, because of the whole coronavirus thing, obviously healthcare has again, you know, been a top priority and a lot of concerns of people. I have for years, my, my wife is from the UK. Um, as you know, they have a, you know, government health system there. It has its pros and it has its cons. But um, the friends that we have there that run businesses, the system itself there is so much easier for small businesses. The, the employer pays a tax, a healthcare tax, if you want to call it. The employees pay their tax. There's no argument over health insurance. There's no headaches. There's no worrying about it going up 20% in a year. Uh, there's, there's a lot of benefits. And yet, when I bring that topic up, I, I get you know, sort of pilloried for it because it's, you can't have that here in the U.S. What are your thoughts on some type of a universal healthcare system here, a single payer system, a national health system like they have, Canada, UK, do you think it would work here? And do you think it would be good for small businesses? So you probably didn't know this, but I'm a healthcare geek. <laughs> I and, <laughs> yeah. And this is something I've spent the last three plus years on going on four years. You know, when it looked like there was going to be a repeal and replace for Obamacare, I asked myself a simple question, you know, what would I design right. in order to replace it? And so I looked at Singapore, I looked at all the single payer systems, you know, et cetera. Um, but the, first, the other thing I did is I, I said, well, what do my companies do? And we self-insure. And I looked and it turns out that 95% of companies with more than 5,000 employees self-insure. Self That's correct. Yep. And I said, okay, well, why can't you self-insure? Because effectively, self-insurance is just creating your own capital pool and getting somebody to manage the, or administer the, the, the deals um, and put together some of the network. So I actually, as we're speaking right now, um, have a plan in front of the RAND Corporation. I went to Secretary Azar. I went to Seema Verna. I went to um, Ezekiel Emanuel, Andy Slavitt, people that are healthcare geeks on both sides of the spectrum and showed them um, this plan called the 10 plan that the RAND Corporation is now evaluating. But effectively, what the 10 plan is, it says if you're making under 250% of the federal poverty level, and it varies by how many people are in your family, your healthcare is free except for some co-pays for certain things, right? right. So for, from that perspective, it is um, it is single payer. Right. Above that amount, it's means tested. So if you're a single person and you make 45,000, you may pay 1% of your healthcare bill. Um, but what happens is, let's just say you break a leg, it's $1,000 and you don't have any money in the bank, you, you know, you'll get billed. Um, the 10 plan will be in place for you and you pay 
just 1% of your monthly income towards that $1,000 bill. And after 15 years, whatever is outstanding is eliminated. It's just written off. Right. The beauty of this program, the beauty of this program though, is if you don't use the healthcare system, let's just say you're 25 and healthy or 27 is a better example and healthy, you pay no premiums. Hmm. And when the, the RAND study came, came back, effectively what it said, and this was just for the population for the ACA, but it applies even more so if you did the entire general population, um, individuals across the board, 47 million people who are eligible for the ACA would be immediately covered as opposed to the 12 million who are actually receiving insurance. On average, individuals would save 1200 to $2,300 a year. And in aggregate, we would save individual consumers in that 47 million, across that 47 million would, would save 63 billion. And the cost to the government would be exactly the same as it is now. And so that's that's the way I would do it, a hybrid between an open market, means-tested repayment program, and single payer. And doesn't this take the burden off the small business owner? Because no longer do we of have course. A, right? I mean, it's- Yeah, of course, yeah. Right, so- Yeah, you don't have to deal with it. Yeah, yeah you just, you don't so, have to deal with it. And you know, it's funny, because that was my wife's biggest complaint when she moved here, was that I don't know why, she said, I don't know why my employer is involved in my healthcare. It's none of their business, but that's just the way the system has been here. Well, yeah, yeah as you know, right, that's a remnant of the-, the um, the payroll freezes back in the 70s yeah. or even before that right right and and so you know it, you're right this is not it's for any company it's overhead and it's you know and it's intrusive and it's difficult and it's not the best thing for the healthcare of this country and that's why it's called the 10 plan and once i get all the final things back from um the rand corporation I'll be out there pimping it and I've shown it to the Trump White House. You know, they got excited about it until I said something negative about Trump and they were no longer excited about it. And I've shown it to Biden um, and we'll see what he has to say. I, I think he's got bigger fish right now, but the response across the board has been really good. And one other thing, you know, as, as a capitalist that I added to there, one of the problems of our current healthcare system is all the healthcare data is silent. Right. In other words, your insurance system has keeps your data Nobody shares that data. And even with all the, the encryption and privacy um, support and HIPAA support that we can offer, you know, it's not consolidated in any way, shape or form. By doing this singular plan, the 10 plan, but we can learn from that data and become better at healthcare. And that's critically important. And, and it's not something that's happening now. Great. Two more questions and I'll let you go. First one is working from home. Sure. Obviously, we've seen for years, I've been telling my clients that, you know, you know, you got to embrace the cloud. You should be sending more people from home. Millennials have been demanding it for years. Um, those companies that actually listen to those younger employees were, were in better position to adapt during, you know, this whole pandemic. Um, but obviously, this is going to have some long-term effects. On small businesses, one of the effects that I see is more people working from home long-term means less people having lunches. In, in town and going to small merchants and businesses near office buildings. Do you agree and do you think that this trend yes, will continue and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I've been working at home for 15 years, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I, I've said it over and over again. I'm not doing a meeting unless someone's writing me a check. <laughs> um, so, yes, I agree. And, you know, the Mavs and my companies are going to continue to do this. There's just no reason. But what we will do is um, have social gatherings so that people have that personal connection to people. You know, so when you start somebody new and they've never met Gene or Mark and right. they're all in Philadelphia, you know, that that has, its, you know, set of issues. Um, but 
you can deal with those by having gatherings and meetings, but have them in a hotel ballroom, right? You can have a small office with just a, you know, a conference room to deal with that and, and do it once or twice a week so that you have that social side of it. Is that, that going to mean, to your point, that localized businesses, particularly in urban areas or in office buildings, are going to get hurt? Unfortunately, yes. But again, you know, we used to be an agrarian economy, and all the that ecosystem with support for agrarian, agrarian companies, that's gone. Right. Things that change. localization is gone. Um, and when you have creative destruction like this, this is part of what happens. Yeah. You know, when you walk down 7th Avenue in New York, it looks much different Gina, today than it did 50 years ago. Right. So things change. Uh, retail changes, merchants change, and we just have to adapt. In the 25 years that I've been running my business and covering small business, um, and although I hate the word uncertainty because there's always uncertainty and uncertainty yep. is what makes winners and losers, I, I do have to admit that these are pretty much the most uncertain times I've ever I've ever encountered. Yeah. I mean, right? We have and let's hope for the most uncertain times we ever encounter. I, I agree, and you know what makes it what's incredible that besides we're in a situation with with you know rising coronavirus cases and shutdowns and and you know all all of that, we have a, a presidential election that's coming up right now where where it is more uncertain certain what will happen if we reelect the incumbent than his opponent, which is nothing that I've ever encountered before. So what, as a, as a, what would you say to small business owners to be, in this environment? Tell me your thoughts. Ignore politics. Okay. Let's ignore politics. Yeah, just ignore them. Yep. You know, I mean, go vote. Yeah, go vote, but run your business. You know, every minute you spend focusing, you know, or getting upset or getting amped up about what's happening, you know, with this election is, you know, non-productive time. Just go out there and do what you do, you know, do what makes you successful and try to do as much of it as you can. So while everybody else is, you know, all caught up in tweeting about, you know, presidential politics, that doesn't do you any good. You just have to go out there and run your business and whatever changes, changes, you know, We've both been doing business a long time and tax rates have gone up and down. And in all those years and all the investing I've done and all the businesses I've started, I've never looked at tax rates first before I started a business. Never even looked at tax rates when I was going to invest in a business. You know, I'm always more entrepreneurial than financial engineering. And, you know, when it comes to regulations and whatever, as I said earlier, as long as everybody plays by the same rules, then, and you run your business well, you can kick your competitor's ass. That's what matters to me. Mark Cuban, who among other entrepreneurial activities is owner of the Dallas Mavericks and also appears on the popular TV show, Shark Tank. Mark, uh, thank you very much. For more information about what we discussed today, as well as other coronavirus questions and topics, please visit the Paychex COVID-19 Help Center. The address is paychex.com forward slash coronavirus dash resources. Mark, thanks again for joining me. This has been a great conversation. Thanks everyone else for listening, and we will talk to you next time. This podcast is property of Paychex Inc. 2020, all rights reserved.